0: So Father, right now in different hospital beds and in different towns and places, there are those fighting for their life in this moment. And so we do pray for your intervention. We pray for your merciful, immediate coming to them and rallying their spirit and their body and giving physicians and attendants wisdom and skill. And so Lord, would you please come to the aid of your saints that are in a dark moment in these moments. And Lord, for the many around us that we don't know their names, but there are around this globe many people who this will be the last dawn they see. And so we pray that you would bring the saving gospel of Jesus Christ into their souls, that they might see the face of the Savior when they awaken. And we do thank you for a hope that is grander and mightier than death and that there will be a final defeat of that final enemy and that one day we will reign in a place where there will be no more death any longer. So we thank you for sending your son who is life to die, to give us life. And we look to honor him and to praise him as we esteem him with larger eyes through this glorious text. And we ask this in his name, amen. When you hear the name Jesus, what picture pops to mind? Is it a babe in a manger? Is it an infant in Mary's lap? Is it a teacher on a shoreline? Is it a smiling, grinning, bearded man with babes and little children in his arms? Is it someone hanging on a cross? All of those are accurate, but all of those are incomplete and none of those are who Jesus is to now. And all of us at various times and ages and cultures view Christ according to certain images that prevail in our culture. And so a historical theologian named Jaroslav Pelikan wrote a book called uh, Jesus Through the Centuries. And he just tracks through the statuary and the artifacts and the music and the literature of 20 centuries of history how different people have viewed Jesus predominantly. Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the king, Jesus the monk, Jesus the man who is our model, Jesus the martyr, Jesus the political activist. All of which is true, but all of which is incomplete and partial. And even today where views like Jesus the social activist or Jesus the all-forgiving good buddy, there's truth in all of those, but none of those really reveal who Jesus is in all of his glory. And what ultimately matters is not how our culture, how our age, how our personal preferences are to view Jesus Christ, but whom does scripture reveal him to be? What does the Father have to say about the Son? Because that's what's of eternal significance. And there are certain passages in our scripture That like in the life of Christ, we see him in more of his glory than we typically do. And so when Jesus walked on earth for those 33-ish years, most times they just thought him as the especially dutiful son and the especially excellent carpenter and the especially astute visitor in Jerusalem and then the especially powerful teacher. But then there were those moments when he stilled the winds and the waves and when he caused a few loaves and fish to multiply to feed the thousands on a mountaintop when he's shown like the sun in the refulgence of his divine glory. And we get these brief glimpses of Christ in his splendor that should prevail in our understanding of who he is today. So John 1, Philippians 1, Revelation 4 and 5, and Colossians 1. We get the veil pulled back a bit more so that more light comes out and we get to appreciate the glory and the splendor and the supremacy Jesus Christ our Savior so if you have your Bibles please open them to the book of Colossians chapter 1 where we will be looking at verses 15 through 20 whose theme is Christ supreme Christ supreme over creation Christ supreme over the church and Christ supreme over the new creation someday Christ supreme over creation He is the image of the invisible God. So this is the first of several he is statements that are just blunt, straightforward assertions of who Jesus Christ is. And the first is that he is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the Greek word icon. And it means an image, a reflection, uh, a portrayal, a portrait. And so when they were asking Jesus whether they should pay taxes to Caesar, and he says, hand me a denarius whose image is on this coin, meaning Caesar's, whose icon is there. And it was the likeness of Caesar. But Jesus is the likeness of the invisible God. The God whom we cannot see has made himself seeable in Jesus Christ in his incarnation. That the invisible God made himself visible. The intangible God made himself touchable when he came in the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. So this is what John 1 says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him, revealed Him. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. So if you want to know who God is... Don't go to a religious teacher, don't go to a mystic, don't have an experience, whatever you do, don't trust your gut or follow your hunches. Go to Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. If you want to know who the character of God is, look at the character of Jesus Christ, who was God in flesh as he lived out that character in the midst of fallen humanity. And see God in all of his compassion and his mercy And His tenderness and His gentleness and His holiness and His righteousness and His integrity. If you want to know the character of God, then look at the character of Jesus Christ. If you want to know how God feels about sexuality or politics or social justice or any other subject, then go see what Jesus had about that subject because Jesus is the Word of God who is the final word about what God feels in any subject. If you're looking to know God, then you need to look for Jesus Christ because he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to God the Father except through God the Son. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus Christ because he is the image of God, the perfect reflection of the fullness of God. He is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that he was born first as though Jesus were a created being we're going to see in the following verses that Jesus is the creator. But the firstborn is meaning he has pride of place. And so in the West, there used to be the tradition of primogeniture. And in the East, this is still common in many cultures where the firstborn son has pride of place among all the subsequent siblings. And as the firstborn myself, may I say that this tradition has much to merit it. And this is what he's talking about here is that the firstborn gets pride of place among all that come after. And Jesus has pride of place. He has preeminence. He is supreme above anything else that exists. And specifically, this is fulfilling a prophecy that God made about the Messiah in Psalm 89. This is what the psalmist says. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. And anointed one is what the word Messiah means, the Greek version of which is Christ. So this anointed one, God says, My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn, his might, his power will be exalted. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I shall make him my firstborn. Now, was David the firstborn? No. Was David the first king of Israel? No, Saul was. Was David the firstborn among his siblings? No, he was the youngest born. But God made him preeminent. God gave him pride of place. And so he says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My cup by loving kindness, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. And I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And these prophecies that God initially made about his Messiah, messianic King David were fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is the firstborn of all creation. He has pride of place, preeminent supremacy above everything else that exists. But it does not mean that he was firstborn because verse 16 makes clear that by him or in him all creation things were created both in the heavens and on the earth meaning everything if you're on the earth and look down jesus made that if you're on the earth and look up jesus made that the god the father the architect made all things through jesus christ the builder jesus is the creator of all things that exist this is what John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. 1 Corinthians 8 says, There is but one God the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Hebrews 1 says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ is the one through whom God made all things that existed. So for these last several weeks, butterflies and hummingbirds have been enjoying the lantana outside of our dining room window. And it's been utterly delightful to sit down to eat and then God's creation comes and enjoys their dinner right outside of our window. And both of these are moving miracles. A butterfly has a compound eye with 17,000 lenses that give it a 314 degree field of vision. That without moving its body, it sees almost a full 360 degrees. It's proboscis, which it makes shortly after it comes out of the cocoon, is longer than its body, but then rolls up like a garden hose. It has food sensors on its feet so that it can land and detect where it needs to draw nourishment. It's an utter miracle. And the hummingbirds, their hearts beat 1200 beats per minute. Their wings flutter 200 times per second. They consume half their body weight daily. Both of these moving miracles were made by God the architect through the builder, Jesus Christ. He made things of such delicacy and precision like no other craftsman can ever attempt to emulate. And Jesus is that artistic craftsman that God used to make everything that exists. On the other end of the spectrum, everything that we see in the sky and the things that we can were also made by Jesus. So when I was in college, I was required to take uh, four semesters of science. And three of those, I took astronomy courses. Uh, The first because I thought it sounded interesting and easier than the alternatives. And the other two because I became utterly fascinated at the scope and the size and the scale and the diversity of God's creation outside our solar system. It's literally inconceivable how immense and vast this universe is. That there are stars that dwarf our sun the way that the sun dwarfs the earth and our solar system is this microscopic dot in the scale of these galaxies that are this together forming this universe. And we're still, as soon as we send new, more powerful telescopes into space to be able to see further without the obscuring of the atmosphere, it's still boggling the mind. Ever, the further we look, the deeper we go, the more astounding is the size and the intricacy of the universe. And Jesus Christ made all of those things. Because through him, all things were made. And on a more personal level, God used his son to make us. And all the dearest people in our life, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friend, those were also made by God through the son, Jesus Christ. He was the architect, the son was the builder. And from the smallest scale to the largest scale, Jesus Christ made all things. And not only the things visible, but he also goes on to say the things that were invisible as well. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So we don't even know the scope of Jesus' creation because we haven't seen the angelic realm yet. But the brief glimpses that we get in scripture of the seraphim and the cherubim and the four living creatures in Revelation 4 and the angels. Jesus made all of those as well. And so it's interesting when an angel appears on earth, a typical response of human beings is to fall prostrate at their feet. But do you remember what we just sang? At whose feet do the angels prostrate fall? Jesus Christ because he made them all. And we're wrong to think as though God and Satan were equal opposing powers. Satan is just an archangel, like Michael and Gabriel. But Jesus made him also before his fall. So there is no contest between the powers of darkness and the power of light. It is God allowing the powers of darkness to prevail for a season to accomplish his good purposes. But one day they will be utterly vanquished. Just like on the day that Christ died, they were overthrown. Because Jesus is the creator and Lord of all things visible and invisible. All things were made by him. All things were made through him. And all things were made for him that the Father made all of this vastness. I was reading an older book and it used a great adjective of all the vasty world. I don't know if we can still use the word, but is not vasty a great adjective. And all the vasty world that God the Father made, He made for the Son, by the Son, through the Son, that the Son would have preeminence above all things. And notice those three prepositional phrases. All things were made in the Son or by the Son, through the Son, for the Son. Christ is supreme over every aspect and element of creation. And after having been made, in Him all things hold together. The cosmos doesn't disintegrate into chaos because Jesus, the Almighty Son, holds it together. That the sun and the stars continue to shine because Jesus keeps them lit. (laughs) That the planets continue to orbit around the sun because Jesus keeps them circling. The earth isn't merely orbiting. We're spinning on our axis at tens of thousands of miles an hour. And yet we don't go spinning off into space like kids on a merry-go-round. Because Jesus holds them together. Our atmosphere doesn't spin off and dissipate because Jesus keeps us wrapped in this warm blanket. At an atomic level, uh, the electronic force doesn't cause the positive and negative particles to separate like they do because he prevails that the strong nuclear force is stronger than the, electronic, the uh, electromagnetic force. Jesus is holding all things together. And if all this sounds suspiciously divine, all this creating and sustaining activity, it is. It is. Because Jesus is God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity. Fully God, just as he was fully man. So that all the natural attributes that we worship the Father for, that he is all-knowing, that he is all-powerful, that he is transcendent, that he is omnipresent. All of these things that we praise God for, we pray Jesus for, because Jesus is God all the moral perfections that we praise God for, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he is righteous, that he is good, that he is just, that he is holy, that he is loving. We give equal praise to the Son for because the Son is equally God. As we say in the Nicene Creed, the Son of God is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father, and yet distinct from the Father. So Jesus Christ is not a perpetual babe in a manger, an infant in a lap, or a martyr on a cross. He is fully God sustaining this universe until he recreates this universe because Jesus is supreme over creation. Secondly, Jesus is supreme over the church. He is also head of the body, the church. Now, he's not talking here merely about the church and Colossae. He's talking about the universal church that is the body of Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. And he, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, put all things in subjection under his feet and gave Christ his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Jesus Christ, who is supreme over creation, is supreme over the church. He is the one who founded the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the one who commissions the church to go into earth and to make all the disciples. It is because of Jesus' headship that the gates of hell don't prevail against the church. It is because of the power of Christ that as his agents go into every nation, tribe, and tongue that the gospel is able to take root into fallen human hearts. And so it is Jesus' church that we are a part of. He is the one that dictates what we believe. He is the one that directs what we do. It is by his power that we're enabled to do any good thing. There is no church that is MacArthur's church, Keller's church, Swindoll's church, Devers' church. It's Christ's church. And we are all just his servants serving him as he calls us where he places it by his power for his glory because he is the head of all things. We celebrate two sacraments because Christ established two sacraments. And there is no one who is head over the church other than Jesus Christ that we look to for all things. And he is also the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now the firstborn from the dead indicates that Jesus Christ is also the first one to be resurrected. That there were various people who were resuscitated. And so Jairus' daughter died, and Jesus brought her back to life, but then she died later. Uh, Lazarus was called forth from the grave, but then he died later. And as one playwright said, that when the second death came, Lazarus said, Oh no, not this part again. But Jesus resuscitated him. But Jesus is the first one of the resurrection. The first one to have a glorified body. So God is not going to have us spend eternity in ethereal bodies floating around in clouds playing harps with halos. Uh, However many Tom and Jerry episodes that you saw, that's not the image of heaven we should have. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and we are going to be resurrected in a glorified body that will never injure that will never ail, that will never hurt, that will never get sick, that will never age, that will have endless energy, that will be able to withstand and enjoy the glory of God and the wonders of his new creation. And that resurrection that we're looking forward to, Jesus was the first to experience so that he could be the first one of the new creation as well. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. So when in the spring, you see the trees begin to green and then to blossom and then to bloom. And then that first piece of fruit comes out on the vine, on the branch, in the bloom. And you know that more is coming because you saw the first one emerge. Well, in the same way, Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. And what that should encourage us is, is that because he died and rose, when we die, we will rise as well. It gives me chills just to say that. There are those of us that we have lost this year. Uh, We know one saint and she says, I've lost 20 people to COVID personally that she knows, but those that are in Jesus Christ, we know will rise again and never die again. And we know that they will rise because Jesus rose. We know that we will rise because Jesus rose. Easter is our reassurance of our resurrection. Um, the Hillsong song about uh, because he does, I will, that because Jesus left the grave behind him, so will I. And that's 100% true. And so Jesus, who has the first place over the present creation, he also has first place in the coming resurrection so that he would have first place in everything. God wants his son to be preeminent over everything in this creation, in the resurrection, and in the new creation to come, which is our next section. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Now, if you use the New American Standard or certain other translations, you'll notice that the word Father is in italics because that word is not in the original text. Uh, Likewise, in the ESV, they insert the word God but it's italicized because that word isn't in the original text. Here's how the original text re- reads in the Greek. In him was pleased all the fullness to dwell, which probably has the idea that God in all his fullness dwelt in Jesus Christ in the incarnation. And so Jesus Christ on earth was fully man, but also fully God. And in him, all the fullness of deity fully dwelt so that he could accomplish The reconciliation of all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, Reconciliation is a beautiful word. And we're going to see next week about the way that word is applied to us as individuals. But here the scope is grander and more glorious. That Jesus is going to be the one who restores all things. So to reconcile means to conciliate again. It assumes that there were two parties that once were in concord, fell into conflict, and now have been reconciled through a mediator. And so there was God who made us to represent him on earth, that we were like God, we reflected him, so that we could represent God on earth as his vice regents. But when we rebelled against God and disobeyed his commandments, we put ourselves in enmity with God. We made ourselves his enemy. And now all the conflict and all the contention and all the conflict that we experience is a result of that rebellion that we as God's creatures raised against our Creator. And God would have been fully justified to simply judge us finally And to go back to what he had been doing before he created the heavens and earth, namely, enjoying a perfect, loving, harmonious relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But God loved us so much that instead he set out on a plan of redemption that ultimately could only be accomplished by the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, God, the Son, becoming fully man, Jesus Christ so that he could be our representative and live a perfect life to perfectly fulfill the requirements of a perfect God in the law, and that he could qualify as our substitute to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed, so that as all of our sins came on Christ and all of Christ's righteousness was reckoned to our account, we who were God's enemies were reconciled with God we were brought into harmony and peace and resolution again. And what God did with us, God is going to do with all of the creation, that this corrupt and polluted and war-torn world is going to be made new someday. That there's not always going to be floating islands of plastic. (laughs) There's not always going to be... uh, decaying and corruption included springs and wells that the harm that we've wrought god is going to restore someday through jesus christ who is going to make all things new a new heavens and a new earth so that they are pristine and perfect and pure and incorruptible forever and forever so uh, last week i finished a rereading of the lord of the rings it had been that time And if you remember how Samwise Gamgee goes back to the Shire with Pippin and Mary, and what do they find in the Shire? The Shire. The title of the chapter is called The Scouring of the Shire. And the Shire was this idyllic community where everything was green and lush and innocent, and the hobbits were just largely blind to the wickedness of the world. But Saruman, when he was overthrown and defeated, went as... Remember the nickname Sharky, which isn't supposed to connote uh, shark. If any of y'all are Tolkien nerds, it comes from the orcish word for old man. And so this old man goes back and he begins to destroy the shire out of spite. He tears down the trees just because they're beautiful. He pollutes the springs just because they're pure. He tears down everything that is good and erects what is ugly simply to spite, even though he knows he's defeated. And that's what Satan has done is that he was overthrown and he was defeated and he knows he's going to be completely undone. But out of spite, he continues to wreak havoc and to pollute the pure and to corrupt the innocent and to antagonize and to cause pain and hurt everywhere he can. But do you remember When Sam and the others were in the uh, idyllic forest of Lothlorien, the Gladriel gave him this little casket of earth. And in this earth was a seed. And she said, you're going to need this when you go home to make things new. And Samwise goes back and begins to just put a grain here and a grain there and the seed here. And when the spring comes at a miraculous pace, things are made new. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is going to do someday. Uh, For those who are a little bit older maybe, if you remember seeing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the best of the Star Trek series, (laughs) and there was part of that plot line, the Genesis Project, a terraforming technology. And you remember at the final end that on this planet that later is going to have tremendous ramifications for Spock who sacrificed himself to save his friends And the Genesis project begins to bring life where there was only formerly a dead husk. And it's a vivid cinematic image of just this rolling light with this coming green and the spreading of life. And it's the closest thing I've seen in film to what maybe the new heavens and the earth are gonna look like some way. My favorite description of it actually comes from a second century uh, theologian. We've got some people from France here today. This is from a man named Irenaeus of Lyon. And this is his description of what the new world will be like when Christ gets his hands on it. The righteous shall bear rule upon their rising from the dead because we rise to reign as kings on the earth. And the creation, having been renovated and set free, shall bear fruit with an abundance of all kinds of food from the dew of heaven and from the fertility of the earth. And the days will come in which vines shall grow And each vine shall have 10,000 branches. And each branch 10,000 twigs. And each twig 10,000 shoots. And each shoot shall send forth 10,000 clusters. And on every one of those clusters 10,000 grapes. And every grape when pressed will give 250 gallons of wine. He's falling over himself trying to think of exponential fertility. And when any one of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster... Another shall cry out, I am a better cluster. Take me, bless the Lord through me. In like manner, a grain of wheat would produce 10,000 ears and every ear will have 10,000 grains and every grain will bear 10 pounds of clear, pure, fine flour. And likewise, all the other fruit-bearing trees and seed-bearing grains in the grass will produce similar proportionate beautiful food. And the animals feeding only on the productions of the earth will become peaceful and harmonious and everything in perfect subjection to man who is finally in perfect subjection to God. is that a great <laughs> description? That's what's coming. And who is able to do this? Only one, Jesus Christ, who is supreme over the new creation as well. Christ is supreme over creation. He is the creator. Christ is supreme over the church. He is the head and the firstborn of the resurrection. And Christ is supreme over the new creation someday, which is why we will fall at his feet and praise him forever and forever and forever. So the story is told of a sculptor who built a statue of Christ trying to present him and the many dimensions of his beauty and his power and his glory. And people came from around the world to come and see this astonishing work And they could glimpse here and there and they could come and they moved around, but none of it seemed complete. And so they came to the sculptor and they said, this is wonderful and it's glorious, but it doesn't seem quite right. He says, you're not looking at it from the right right angle. The only way to properly view the beauty of Christ is to kneel. And the sculptor had made the statue of Christ so that the only way to see it and even a glimpse of its glory was to kneel. And that's what this text compels us to do to kneel and to wonder and to glory and to worship the one who is supreme over all things because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In him, all things were created. All things have been created through him. All things have been created for him. He will come to have first place in everything. The Father was pleased for all the fullness to dwell in him. The Father was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. And the Father has made peace through Christ's death on the cross. If you were in Christ, don't lose hope. Christ is supreme and he is coming back. If you were not in Christ, would you worship him and embrace him as your Savior and Lord now before he returns? Peter, in his message in Acts chapter 3, says this. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth mouth of all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Therefore, how do we respond in light of Christ fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament? Repent. Acknowledge your sins that you're not perfect. And return Go back as prodigals to the Father so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. And that's coming. Take hope. Christ is supreme. Would you pray with me? Father, how little we understand who our Lord is and our minds are unable to grasp even the margins of his glory. But we thank you for passages like Colossians 1, 15 through 20 that do peel back the veil a little bit to let more light shine through. Would the spirit of your son that you have placed in our hearts who know him illumine our minds to see him as he is to soften our hearts to worship him as we are. And if there are any here that do not know him, would you make this the day of their salvation? Would you allow them to repent and to return, to receive Christ as their savior, that their sins might be wiped away and they might eagerly await the coming one who will restore all things. And we ask this in his name, amen.